This is, as Pastor Joyce pointed out, or rather the last Sunday was Sanctity of Life Sunday. That's been the focus for many churches throughout this whole week. Of course, we've got the big Supreme Court case that we haven't got the results from yet. Um, other court cases that we're waiting on and a March for Life. A lot of stuff going on. Uh, it is encouraging if you follow the news to know that things look positive on the legal front, and that's great. We want to thank God for that. But the, the, the greater issue is we don't want to mistake that for the answer. The answer is, of course, a heart change in, in people's hearts and minds and lives. And then on the larger issue, when we talk about the sanctity of human life, uh, that's not just talking about you know, the abortion issue, that's talking about the whole gamut of issues that reflect on the value we place on human life. We are a society that is very quick to uh, stratify people's value, whether it is on their status relative to having been born or not been born, whether it's on their uh, an impairment that is physical or emotional or psychological, whether it's based on age, uh, all kinds of ways in our society we stratify things. And that is not the perspective that people of God should have. So we want to be careful. And one of the things that really encourages me, I thought about testifying, but I, I decided to share it until I get up here. One of the things that really encourages me about this body of, of fellowship of believers, we have people in so many fields in this fellowship that are ministering to sanctity of life issues, whether the medical field or the counseling field, um, teaching, all kinds of things that are all addressing that issue, that, that life, human life is sacred. And we want to be a people who are looking for every, every open window, every opportunity to minister to people who may be devalued in our society with the, the value that is in the person of Christ. We are made in his image. And that is the issue we want to reflect in everything that we do. So, having said that, if you would open your Bibles this morning to uh, 1 Corinthians, or the 2 Corinthians, I'm going to make that mistake several times just so you can anticipate that. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter two, uh, 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We got that, all right? Um, we started last week looking at the introduction to this letter. It's Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, we observed last week that uh, comfort and affliction are two things we are promised in the New Testament. We are promised affliction. Jesus made that clear. In this world you will have tribulation. Slap that on your refrigerator door. Um, but we're also promised the comfort of his spirit. He ministers to us. Doesn't always deliver us from affliction, but always ministers to us in affliction. That is a benefit of being identified with the person of Christ. And that's something to really remember as we go forward. Well, this morning we're going to go with that same idea, but this morning what we're going to see happen is the apostle relating that issue to himself. Remember I said last week, this is like the most personal of Paul's letters. Paul talks more about himself in this letter than, than I think any of the others. And so uh, we're going to see that as we work through the text this morning. So we're in 1 Corinthians. See, just said it again, right? You all know when I say 1 Corinthians, I mean 2 Corinthians. Just make that mental notation. If I can't keep it straight, maybe at least you can. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul writes, For we do not want you to know, or rather we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, 
so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. As you have ministered to us, Father, as we worship, Father, as we minister to you in worship, you have ministered to us. As we've brought our prayer requests and our testimonies before, we, we know that you minister to us, Father. As we bring offering to you, Lord, returning, Father, for your use, the blessings you bestowed upon us, you minister and bless us. So, Father, now we look to your word, and we ask that you would yet bless us again, because we are a needy people, Father. We need to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul is talking about his own affliction and the comfort that he received in that affliction. And in the passage that we just read, there's uh, at least three essential points he's trying to make. Uh, the first is his concern about the Corinthians' awareness. He said in verse 8, we do not want you to be unaware. There's an awful lot in that simple phrase. We're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about the apostles' difficulties, what he actually experienced, what he writes about to the Corinthian church both before and after he was in Corinth and how that's affecting his present situation. And then we're going to finally talk about the, or he talks about the central part the Corinthians played in his life and ministry, even when he wasn't in Corinth. So let's begin with the apostles' concern about the Corinthians and their awareness. Awareness. We do not want you to be unaware. Um, could equally translate it, we don't want you to be ignorant. In fact, a lot of translations have that. We don't want you to be ignorant. Um, and this whole matter of, of knowing, knowledge, is, is a big deal. I mean, nobody wants to be ignorant, right? I mean, that's not something I think any of us aspire to, to, to be ignorant. Um, but in the Greek world, the Greek thinking world, which of course Corinth was part of, it was really big. The whole idea of knowing. Um, gnosis is the word from which all of this unpacks. Uh, and they even had growing in, in their midst, even while this is happening, a, a heresy based around that. Um, among this gnosis or, or knowledge, right? And we talked about that back in the first Corinthian letter. Very clear when I say that. What is actually first Corinthians? We talked about that where Paul talked about uh, people being all pumped up. Remember how knowledge was puffed the puffer fish? Knowledge puffs up, right? Makes arrogant. That's the idea. So they were really hyped on this idea. And it had a lot to do with Greek philosophy and all that. So it's a really big issue, right? Um, and Paul says... Um, I don't want you to be, we don't want you to be uh, ignorant. We don't want you to be not knowing. Um, that's more, that's way more than Paul's saying, there's some information you don't have that I want you to have. Right? When he says we don't want you to be unaware, we don't want you to be ignorant, it's a much bigger statement. Because there's ways Paul could have said that. If Paul had wanted to say, there's some information you don't have, I want to give the information to you, and then you won't leave without the information. He could have said that, but he didn't. And the way he constructs the statement, uh, it suggests, more than suggests, it, it indicates that what he's talking about is a state of being. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be in a place of 
ignorance. It's a state of being that very, very deeply concerned Paul, right? So much is written about, you know, the tragedy of, of being ignorant. Uh, I, I don't often quote shop, you know, go on to Google and go give me a quote on ignorance, right? But if you tried that, it's really quite entertaining because you'll get stuff, everything from, you know, the early church fathers to Gandhi. You know, there's everybody that had anything to say about life talked about ignorance. But one of the things, and most of it's about the tragedy of being ignorant or the cost of being ignorant, but one of the things we don't think about when we talk about, about not knowing, being unaware, being ignorant, is there's more than one kind of ignorance. I have you ever thought about that? It's more than one kind of ignorance. There's the ignorance of the person that just doesn't know. Never been told, right? Uh, never been told to brush your teeth, right? Never been told you're supposed to brush your teeth. And as a result, you don't brush your teeth. And as a result, bad things happen, right? That's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. That's a very easy kind of ignorance to deal with. You just show a person the picture of what will happen in your mouth if you don't brush your teeth and you go... I think I'll start brushing my teeth, right? So you can address that kind of ignorance very, very simply. If there's an easy remedy, uh, just give them the, inf the, the information. And, you know, we sometimes refer to ignorance as a disease or as a malady, kind of a figure of speech. If we want to describe that kind of ignorance, you just don't have the information, as a disease, we could call that the scurvy of, of ignorance. If you're familiar with scurvy at all, I think most people are, that's that disease the British where sailors in general got, we associated with the British most because they were so uh, significant in the age of sail. Sailors would be at sea for months on end without vitamin C. And it had all kinds of really nasty effects on the body to not have vitamin C. And what they discovered was if you just give people vitamin C, one, you don't get the disease, and two, if you have it, you know, most of the symptoms just go away. And so they started shipping them out with you know, oranges and lemon juice, and then they settled on Limes, of course, because limes keep so well, hence the pejorative term for British sailors, limeys. That's where that phrase comes from. They ate a lot of lime to, you know, cure scurvy. So the ign and then it went away. Boom, it's gone, right? I mean, where the disease happens in the world today, and it does, mostly in underdeveloped countries, all they have to do is find a source of vitamin C, even if it's just a pill, boom, and the symptoms go away. So the ignorance that is a result of simply not knowing uh, is like scurvy. Give them the information, and we're done. It's good, right? But there's another kind of ignorance, right? And that is the ignorance of not just not knowing something, but of knowing something that happens to be wrong, right? If you wanted to really contemporize this, you could call it the information between being informed, being uninformed, and being misinformed. Boy, there's a term that's been beat to death, right? Misinformed. You have information, but it's the wrong information. Uh, prejudices are a classic example of this. Bigotry, right? I know people in that group, however you want to define that group, color their skin, uh, gender, age, country of origin, anyway, the town they came from, right? I, and the word prejudice means what? Prejudge. I already know how they're going to act because of whatever, fill in the blank, whatever your point of prejudgment is. And so I know how they're going to act. I know how they're going to act. I know what kind of person they are based on what I already know about them, even though I've never met them, right? That's a different kind of ignorance, right? That's not not having information. That's having the wrong information, okay? And, and it's, really, it's a critical difference. It's actually a very critical difference. If that kind of ignorance is a disease, 
Um, I would liken it to Wilson's disease. How many have ever heard of Wilson's disease? Don't ask me how I know, but I do. Picked it up somewhere along the line, uh, not related to anybody present, right? Wilson's disease is, is, a, is a birth, is a genetic disorder, and on the 13th chromosome, there is a gene, I have no idea what that means, but that's what the article said. On the 13th chromosome, there is a gene that relates a copper level in the body. You know, we all need copper, right? When you read the label on your vitamin pills, it says like 2.5 milligrams of copper, right? We need a tiny, tiny bit of copper in our bodies for our bodies to function. And we get that through our diet normally. Water we drink, food we eat, whatever. Or if through vitamin pills, whatever. We have a source for copper. Well, what if you get too much of it? Well, this pair of genes on the 13th chromosome um, regulate that. And when they sense there's too much copper in the body, they tell the body time to offload some, right? That's how the vast, vast majority of us function. Never even knew that about yourself, did you? You have an automatic copper regulating system. If you have this defect, your body can't do that. And so over your lifespan, the copper level generally goes up and up and up and up and up until finally you start having some really serious side effects, some really serious you know, symptoms from too much copper in your body. And, and your body can't get rid of it. And interestingly enough, it's, although it has, it's got liver issues, it's got heart issues, it's got, it is normally diagnosed by eye doctors because your eyes start turning copper colored. And so somewhere along the line, somebody goes to an eye doctor, they go, ah, you got Wilson's disease, right? And then they give you a medication and your body you know, offloads the copper and you're fine. The body responds amazingly well to this simple medication. No idea what it is, but it causes the body to offload copper and you're back to normal once they regulate the copper level. Well, that's, I would liken this kind of ignorance as having wrong information as being like Wilson's disease, right? It do, you can't solve it by just adding more of something else. You can only solve it by getting rid of something. And so if you have that kind of ignorance, if you're in that kind of a state of unawareness, you have a serious, possibly even life-threatening disease that can only be resolved by getting rid of the bad information, right? And that is really, I think, where Paul's getting at with the Corinthian church. They have, they're in a state of being they, they have complete misunderstanding. They have been misinformed about something, and it's really affecting how things work for them as they move forward, especially, especially as they move forward in their relationship with him. And so Paul talks about their relationship with him, what has happened in his life, and that's as we move forward in the chapter. What they're concerned about, what he wants them to be aware of, he goes into this litany of of descriptions of the kind of things he had been suffering from. He says in verse, um, he says, when we came to Asia, we suffered a lot when we came to Asia. And if you know your book of Acts at all, you know that both before and after Paul was in Corinth, he had been in Ephesus. And things had started really, it's a long, complicated story, things had started really well in Ephesus. They were there for almost two years. Things went great. And then toward the end of that time, it got really bad really fast. Uh, there was a riot. People cut through the whole city, an uproar. We also know that, you know, given the time Paul had spent in the province of Asia, this is not like China, this is Turkey, things had gotten really, really bad. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, I don't think you people factored all of that into your thoughts about your relationship with me. Because if you recall back from 1 Corinthians, there was real conflict between Paul and the Corinthian church. 
There was some stuff going on in the Corinthian church. There were some real serious issues. There was a real challenge to his teaching, his ministry, his authority as an apostle, and he's responding to all that. Well, Paul is saying in all of that, part of the problem was, a big part of the problem was, you didn't take into consideration what was going on in my world. That I was dealing with stuff you can't even think about. He talks about, like in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he says, I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus. They already had that information. They already knew he'd had a rough time in Ephesus on at least one occasion, but they weren't factoring that in. See, what they, what they were conscious of, what they were thinking of, was how Paul's actions was affecting them. What Paul was saying and doing about them, and not factoring in the simple reality that Paul had a lot of churches he was involved with. He had a lot of things that were going on in his life. It just wasn't factoring in. So they were unaware of that. They were in a state of being where they just weren't thinking about that, right? Again, it wouldn't help have helped them just to say it. They weren't in a place to receive it. They were very much focused on what was going on in their own relationship with it. This, in fact, may have been, some, some scholars think, when Paul's well-known physical problems really started to manifest himself when he was dealing with all this stuff. You know, he was arrested multiple times, beaten multiple times, dragged before you know, courts multiple times, thrown in prison, locked in stocks. I mean, he had a rough time of it. There's no two ways about that. And Paul is deeply concerned that they are simply not factoring that in. That's not part um, of their issue. Paul says we were, we were uh, stretched beyond our strength. We despaired even of life. Verse 9, he said, we felt like we had the sentence of death within themselves. They felt like it was all over, right? And that's one thing that comes from me. If I tell you that, I felt like I was going to die. That's one thing. But when Paul says it, having been through all he had been through, and knowing the kind, of cup, the kind of tough customer he was, that says a lot, right? And he's saying, I want you guys to understand that, right? See, there were assumptions they were making about Paul based on his relationship with them, and they were not factoring in all the other stuff. You know? You know, it's so easy to look at the public side of somebody. And I'm not just talking about people in ministry here by any means. It's so easy to look at the public side of other people and see how well they're doing and make assumptions that they're not in a place of internal turmoil or they're not dealing with some very real crisis in their life. And that not having that understanding can really influence the way we, we interact with them and cause some significant problems. And that's what Paul is dealing with here, right? But he says, he makes it really clear that God was faithful through all this, right? After he got done saying we had the sentence of death within ourselves, um, he goes on to say in verse 9, in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So even if we had been dead, it had been okay, right? You, he says, you all, he said, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, this is verse 10, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. And that's great, knowing that when they were in a place like that, they could count on God for his comfort, for his deliverance, but there's a whole nother element. There's a whole nother element that starts in the very next verse. In verse 11, he said, you also joining in helping us through your prayers. See, that's the, the part that for many of the Corinthians wasn't happening. Clearly some were. Clearly some were. But there was a significant part of this church that is simply not on board with the reality 
that because Paul is in a, he's in Ephesus, he's in Asia, and he's really suffering, he's having a hard time. Instead of being worried about how that impacts, you know, Paul is saying, my relationship with you, maybe you should be thinking about how that impacts my relationship with others. Because now that, and again, I'm speaking from Paul's perspective, now that I've been with you for two years, and we have founded a church in Corinth, Maybe you guys need to be really serious about taking into consideration how you should be supporting me as I am taking the gospel to others. That's how the thing works. And that's what the Corinthian church wasn't getting. Large numbers of people in the Corinthian church were having a real problem with Paul because they were only viewing Paul as how his actions affected them. Now, if you read the rest of the chapter, and I'll let you do that yourself, I really encourage you to actually be reading ahead. It really helps. You'll find that the big issue they were having in this particular moment was that Paul had said he was going to go to Corinth, and then he didn't go. Right? He said, I'm going to come to you. That was communicated as part of that first letter correspondence that he was going to come, and he didn't show up. And people in Corinth got all upset. Like, well, you know, what's the deal here, right? This is like our founding pastor. This is the guy that started the church. Paul should be here. Why isn't he here? Rather than saying, why isn't he here? What is going on in Paul's life that's keeping him from being here? Maybe we should be more concerned with that than the simple fact that he's not showing up and you know, taking care of us. If you read the rest of that chapter, you'll find out, actually, if you turn to the end of the chapter, Paul talks about what their attitude probably should have been. He said this, look at verse 23. I call God as my witness in my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. See, they were anticipating his arrival, right? They were, he was going to come help them out. They had lots of problems. Remember that first letter? They had divisions. They had false doctrines. All kinds of problems, right? And they're counting on Paul to you know, show up and help them out. What Paul is saying here is, had I been there in the condition and state you were in, it would not have been nice. Had I been there in that point, at that point in time, it, would have not, it, would, it wouldn't have been pretty at all, right? I would have been forced to say things and do things you don't want me to do. So instead, I delayed, dealt with the things that were going on in Asia because they were more demanding of my attention anyway. And now that you have addressed them because they had, we'll find out as we get farther in the letter. In fact, they had overcorrected. Paul had to, had to, had to kind of bring them back to a center place. Now that that's been corrected, we can talk about my coming to you. But that this whole dynamic is only happening because they haven't taken into consideration what's going on with Paul in Asia and that they needed to be concerned about. And then Paul says this in verse 24, not to be lorded over your faith, but are workers with you in your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm, right? We are workers with you for your joy. Here's the point. Here's the point. I hope, I hope I'm making this clearly. Um, or at least hard to speak to us, right? When people talk about the church they attend, when people talk about the church they're in, what do they usually say? Why do they attend the fellowship they attend? Normally our discussion... See, remember I said before, First Corinthians are an awful lot like us. A lot of the same issues, a lot of the same perspectives, right? A lot of the same state of being, ignorance, if we can say that. When people talk about the church they attend, what do they normally say? Why do they attend there? 
uh, I like this, I like this, this, I get this out of it, this is good, which is all great, right? That's really, that's good. I hope, I hope that you're here because you like being here, right? If not, we need to talk. Um, yeah. But what you don't typically hear is people say, in fact, I don't know that I've ever really heard somebody say, at least not directly, I go to any church, not just any, I go to any church because I have a, a calling on my life. I am doing what I'm doing with my life because God has called me to do that. And that fellowship functions in a way that reinforces what I do with my life. But isn't that what a fellowship should do? Isn't that what a fellowship should do? We're all, we are all called to minister. The word minister just means serve. Each and every one of us is called to minister and serve and represent the kingdom. Unless you go home and lock the door and don't talk to anybody the other six and a half days out of the week, you have people you impact. Now, I, I, there are people in this fellowship, for example, pick on somebody, I gave no warning, that are involved in real estate. I'm going to bet you have some fascinating conversations with people. When the subject of, why are you moving, comes up. Why did you leave? Does this ever happen? You can get out of this by just saying, no, it never happens. <laughs> nope, never had that conversation in my life. I'm going to bet you have some fascinating conversations, right? Now, by the way, I am not suggesting that when they say, I am moving here because that the next words out of your mouth should be, let me tell you about Jesus, right? <laughs> That's probably a little bit too much. But I'm going to bet that there are times when in your interaction with people, as to what brings you, you know, to the valley, they reveal things about their life that are like, wow, that's kind of heavy duty. You don't have to answer, right? I bet every one of us, in the course of our week, encounters people who say things to us that lead us to go, wow, that's kind of heavy duty. I know John's a meat cutter. You have, you, have, you have other employees. You have other employees. And I'll bet they say things that you go, wow, that's kind of heavy duty, right? By the, and don't tell everyone every single time, let me tell you about Jesus. But that will open a door that in the right time and in the right season allows you to, with more or less direct speech, introduce them to the very same God who saved Paul when his life was in danger in, in Ephesus and other parts of his ministry. Paul was able to say, look, let me tell you guys what was going on in my world. I was at the point of death because of all this junk I was dealing with, but thank God somebody someplace was praying for me. And I'm going to assume it was some of you in Corinth, I hope so, because I taught you to when I was there. Even so, our job as a fellowship, this is why I think this speaks to us. So to me, it, it speaks to us so very clearly. Our job as a fellowship is that we facilitate one another in fulfilling the callings that God has placed on each and every one of our individual lives. He didn't save any of us just to be saved. He saved every one of us to represent the life that is in him, the eternal life that we have found in Christ, and to be able to express that to the people that we encounter 
through the week. You know, this, this church has been going now for almost 20 years. Kind of a mind blower. Yeah. Um, and I think we've been here long enough that we've got our feet underneath us pretty well. We know who we are. We know what we do. We know what we stand for, right? And I, 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 one of the things that, w- that we really are talking about, we're praying about, is how do we move forward from here beyond just getting the other side of the building? That's just a building, right? How do we move beyond that? And one of the things that I'll be honest with you frustrated me for quite a while is based on you know my background, my experience, missionary overseas, I think in those terms, right? Classic, traditional, outreach kind of things. And it's abs- that's great. And I want to continue to look for those opportunities. The thing we did in Greece, now three years ago, we want to do that again, minister to refugees, that's phenomenal. Kind of stereotypical outreach stuff. We want to continue to pursue that. But I think we have an even richer dynamic here that we need to explore. And as I look in this congregation, and I think about the kinds of things, when I look at your faces, the kinds of things I know you do during the week, and the kind of exposure you have to people during the week, especially those of you who are very directly in ministry-type employment, whether in the medical field, or in the educational field, or in the, so many of you are very directly involved in helping people, addressing people in crisis situations in life, or critical points in their life. But all of us have those opportunities. I'm, I'll, just, I'll just use one example, and I, I don't want to embarrass anybody. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but probably because I am an adoptee myself, I'm more sensitive to this. We have a fair number of families in this church that have adopted children. And I incredibly appreciate that. Because I, under, I sometimes think, where might I have ended up if I had ended up at all? Right? And I appreciate what a ministry that is. Right? And I know there's multiple families in this fellowship that have that ministry. And I ask myself the question, as a church, how do we step forward in facilitating that? As a church, how do we become a resource for supporting families that do that? And so what I really want to do, what I really want to do, um, is between now, you're going to have our, our annual meeting in, in March, and if you haven't been to one of our annual meetings, I want to encourage you. They're not like one of those church business meetings you don't want to go to. This is one you do want to go to, uh, because number one, the food is good. <laughs> Every time. But also because we talk about these kind of things. Where do we want to go? As a fellowship, where do we want to go? And what I really want to start collecting, so you can be thinking about it and be prepared to you know, maybe talk to me about it, and then we'll put some concrete form to it and share it. And if not at that meeting, at some point in the future. I want to start, in terms of outreach, ministry, who we are, the next level, start talking about ways we can very deliberately facilitate the very unique areas of ministry people in this church are called to. And maybe you didn't think of it as ministry. Maybe you thought of it as just your job. And maybe for some of you it is just your job, but I think that's probably the exception to the rule. Right? I want to see us stepping forward in an area that says, okay, this is the really unique thing, really unique thing God has called you to do in your particular case. To be prepared to say to the, the, the church, the body, and this is how the body 
can reinforce what I'm doing. This is how the body can facilitate me. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church, you guys, some of you got it, most of you didn't, that now that you're established, your job is to help facilitate what I'm doing to reach out to others. That's a characteristic of a mature church. Understanding that you turn the corner and you start reaching out with the gospel. I think our situation here is somewhat untraditional. There's an understatement. Um, but I want to focus on, as we, step, we move forward, I want to focus on the very unique callings of people in this fellowship. And I want our fellowship to become very active in supporting and facilitating that. Now, you may be thinking, what in the world is he talking about? We're going to keep talking about it, and I think it will become clearer as we do. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for um, this section in the Corinthian letters where Paul starts talking about himself, and he talks about the challenges he faced and the difficulties he faced, and how for some in the Corinthian church, that was a problem because they just hadn't gotten the truth. They were still thinking about Paul's ministry as it ministered to them. And how through this, Paul's sowing this, this idea that their place had become one of saying, how do I facilitate Paul ministering to others? And that started with prayer. He's going to talk about other things we know about, Lord. But Father, as we as a fellowship move forward, as we start in the next, you know, the next couple of months really giving some directed thought to this issue, how do we facilitate the really unique callings of, of, the, of, of, of one another, the others in our fellowship, Father, one another, how we as a body of believers can facilitate that, can equip that, that we're more effective, Lord, in ministering to the people we meet on just an everyday basis, Father, bringing them to a knowledge of our Savior, Lord Jesus. Father, we, we, we sing that song, and, and we, I think, hopefully we think of ourselves. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Lord, um, but we could also say that to every person we meet during the week. I know it sounds kind of self-righteous, but it's true. I could walk up to a total stranger, Lord, and point my finger at him and say, you know, Bucko, your sins are many, but his mercy is more, and I know that because it's true of me. Father, we meet so many people desperately in need of you. We interact, Father. We do business with so many people desperately in need of you. Lord, we want to be the kind of people who are equipped to speak into those situations with wisdom and authority. As we move forward, Father, with this idea, help us, I pray. Guide and direct our steps. Father, as we go through the next couple of weeks in our individual lives, I pray, Lord, that our thoughts would be active Asking the question, how can my church, how can this fellowship I'm a part of, how can it help me take the gospel to those I'm interacting with? How can my church help me, Lord, be the biblical witness, the Jesus witness I'm supposed to be? Help me, we pray, to that end, in Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.